Let me just give you, before we get started into the meat of what we're talking about, let me just give you just a few things to consider. First of all, it should be obvious as we're working our way deeper into the confession, how much the articles that we're looking at are dependent upon and build upon articles that came previously. So you're going to see language in the articles today on effectual calling, on the covenant of grace, and of many others, all of which are leaning on the more foundational doctrines to come. And so one of the ways, as I've said before, that we want to try to read the confession is not each chapter top to bottom, but the whole confession left to right. Evangelical Christians, as I've told you before, typically think about doctrine as individual marbles in a bag. I've got my theology bag, and, and I've got different marbles. And so I've got my marble on the doctrine of Christ, and I've got my marble on justification by faith alone. I've got my marble on whether or not gifts continue or whether they don't. And I just kind of throw them in a bag as seems best to me. And I can take them out or add them at will without giving much mind to whether they affect any others. So we typically think about theology as a group of marbles in a bag. In reality, what the confession is advancing is that theology is not a bunch of doctrines that are mostly disconnected from one another or isolated from one another, but rather it's a body of divinity. There's an organic whole, right? So it doesn't mean that every part of the confession is as important as other parts. In the same way with our own bodies, brains and hearts are more important than pinkies and little toes. In the same way, some doctrines are more foundational such that if you lose them, the whole body dies. Others are going to be less foundational, where if you lose them or compromise them, well, the body may be inconsistent or hindered. It's still going to live. It may still be effective in a number of different ways. It's just going to be a little bit handicapped. And depending on what the doctrine is, depends on the degree to which it's handicapped. And so one of the things that I want to just re-impress upon you is how the confession functions not as a bag of marbles, but as a body of divinity, an organic whole that is mutually reinforcing and mutually dependent. In other words, what we find in the confession is not so much uh, a project of biblical theology. Biblical theology is concerned with how certain doctrines are traced out chronologically, across redemptive history. So when you think biblical theology, we want to think about chronology, right? And so we might take a theme from the garden and then trace that theme, say like temple, all the way through the Bible. And so we're considering themes chronologically. What we have in the confession, though, is an exercise in systematic theology. It is, as it were, a small little bitty primer in systematic theology. That is, it is showing various doctrines from the scriptures in their logical relationships to one another. So it's not considering them chronologically, that's biblical theology. It's considering them logically, more foundational, less foundational, all of which are related 
What are the doctrines and how do we arrive at them? Not just from having proof texts, but also from drawing out necessary inferences from Scripture as we interpret it with Scripture. And so we're drawing logical conclusions, reinforcing it, testing it with Scripture, and then summarizing it. That's the task of systematic theology, and that's what we're doing with the confession. And so just keep that in mind as we go through, because there are more foundational doctrines that we've already looked at. And what we're looking at today is setting the table for doctrines that are yet to come. We're going to see references, for instance, to the means of grace. Those means of grace are going to be alluded to in chapter 22 on worship, as well as chapters 28, 29, and 30 on baptism and the Lord's Supper, all of which is, finds its root, its foundation here in the doctrines of faith and of repentance. You say, well, now, wait a minute. Let me, let me, let me figure this out. You open up your confession, and when you look at the table of contents— you say, this doesn't look like the order of salvation as I'm used to considering it. Wouldn't faith and repentance go at the very front end of these chapters? Why is it here on the back end of all of these saving graces? Well, as I explained before, the confession isn't organized according to a traditional order salutis, where we might put repentance and faith at the beginning of the Christian life, justification and adoption following repentance and faith. No, rather... What it's doing is it's prioritizing God's work to us and in us and for us. The $10 word for that would be his monopluralistic work, justification, adoption, and sanctification. And it's followed then by God's work in us that produces responsibilities for us summarizes our work or our response to God's grace. The $10 word for that would be di-pluralistic. So not mono-pluralistic, but di-pluralistic. And so what we're exploring now, beginning this week, is that di-pluralistic doctrines. The doctrines that, for the first time, have something to say about what we're to do. And that begins tonight with the doctrines of saving faith, and of repentance unto life. And I hope that I'm able to persuade you from the confession, not only that it's biblical, but it's worth us considering these key doctrines. Can it ever be the case that sometimes we take for granted familiar doctrines and we maybe haven't thought very critically about them in some time? It's kind of like, you know, when you go take your laundry, you take a, a suitcase out, you haven't traveled in a while, and you unzip one of the pockets. This never happens to Paul, I'm sure, but it happens to me all the time. And you reach in there, and there's some clothes from the last time you took it. Always your dirty clothes. You say, I won't forget that it's there. And you pull it out. Ooh, it's got a little rank. <laughs> you need to pull it out. You got to wash it. You got to clean it, refold it, reorder it. Sometimes doctrines like that. We can take for granted uh, certain doctrines that we become, perhaps in our own minds, overly familiar with. And we need to take them out, spread them out, clean them out, refold them neatly, reorder them so that we can think about them more accurately because they're foundational. And I think these doctrines are like that. That when we say faith, it's kind of one of those words that we throw around, isn't it? But don't really give much thought or attention to. 
Or when we think about repentance, there can be a whole lot of confusion about repentance. I mean, we do it weekly in our order of service when we do a prayer of confession. It's a call to repentance. But it might be kind of out of sight, out of mind, kind of in one ear, out the other. We hear that all the time. And so, we need to be reacquainted with the categories and the ingredients and the nature of these wondrous doctrines. If you grab the handouts on the way in, and I hope you did, you should have chapter 14 in your hand first. We're going to be looking at chapter 14 of Saving Faith. You should also have a Bible with you as we're going to be looking at a number of different passages. What I want to do is I just want to work through it quickly. We've got to cover two of them tonight. And I want to introduce you to the logic of the article just tip you off to ways, perhaps, that it's dependent upon articles that have, or uh, chapters or doctrines that have come before. And then I want to just slow down as we get to the end of it, because one of the things that I find so impressive, not just about the confession itself, but about these particular doctrines, it, it commends to us the goodness of the confession, is not just the, doc, the doctrinal care that it takes, the precision that it takes with every doctrine, but the pastoral care that it takes. What does this have to do with our lives? How does it impact our discipling? What does this have to do with my own assurance and comfort? And so we want to slow down at the end of each one of these articles because it aims to those ends. Chapter 14 of Saving Faith. Notice that we've got three paragraphs, and we're going to divide it up in just that way. In paragraph one, we're going to see the gift and the growth of faith. Within that paragraph, we're going to see really two things. We're going to see the grace of faith, and we're going to see the means of faith. Then in paragraph two, we're going to see the basis and the behavior of faith. What's its foundation, and how does faith act? And then finally, in the third paragraph, we're going to consider the nature of true faith. There is such a thing as a false or a spurious faith, and there is a true faith. What is it that characterizes a true faith, and how is it distinguished from spurious belief? That's what we're going to consider at the very end. Follow along with me. Here in paragraph 1, we see, first of all, the gift and the growth of faith. And notice the emphasis in the first four words, the grace of faith. It is aiming from the very beginning to say, even though faith is a response of believing elect to the gospel, it is still ultimately rooted in the gracious work of God on our behalf. That faith is not a work whereby we are justified. Faith, rather, is a work that stems from the grace that justifies. And that's what we see here. That it is instrumental, but it's not the agent of salvation. No, the agent of salvation is mentioned later on in that first sentence. Look, the grace of faith by which... That's instrumental language by which the elect are enabled to believe so that, here's the goal, their souls are saved. That grace of faith is the work not of men, but of the Spirit of Christ 
in their hearts. And so we see, first of all, that faith is a gift. We see that in Ephesians 2, 8. We're all familiar with it. Jesus, in Hebrews chapter 12, is called the author of our faith, which is to say that it begins with Him. The Holy Spirit, as we see here, is the agent of faith. The one by whose power we are brought to believe from a regenerate heart. But notice, it not only addresses here the the author of faith and the agent of faith, but in the rest of the paragraph, it touches on the means of faith. What are the means that God uses to bring His elect to faith, to bring them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son? What are the means that He's appointed? And once they're in His kingdom, what are the means that He uses to strengthen their faith? That's what's being summarized here in this first paragraph. Notice, first of all, the converting means. Faith is ordinarily produced by the ministry of the Word. What does the Apostle Paul say in Romans 10, verse 17? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. Where the Word of Christ is not proclaimed, where there is no ministry of the Word, there can be no true saving faith. And there can be no true saving faith where there is no ministry of the Word. You say, where do we get that from? Well, recall all the way back in chapter 1, paragraph 1, we talked about the necessity of the Scriptures. Why is the Word necessary? Well, it's necessary, first of all, because what God created and everything that He reveals in what He created, it's sufficient for one thing, that is to give the basic knowledge of God, the knowledge of God that all men everywhere, dead in Adam, suppress, but it's also insufficient. What is it insufficient to do? It's insufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will unto salvation. And to that end, the word of Christ is necessary. This is what it says. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and His will that is necessary for salvation. Therefore, the Lord is pleased at different times and in various ways to reveal Himself and to declare His will to His church. And so here we say, where, what is the means of saving faith? How does one come to assent to the knowledge of God and His will unto salvation such that from a regenerate heart produced by God's effectual calling and the power of the Holy Spirit, can respond with this kind of faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. Where there is no ministry of the Word, there can be no saving faith. There can be no saving faith apart from the ministry of the Word. But for all of those who have been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel, notice that The confession here also addresses not just the converting means, but also the confirming means of grace. It says, by this same ministry and by the administration of baptism in the Lord's Supper, prayer and other means appointed by God 
Faith is increased and strengthened. It's to say not only under the preaching of the Word and in other aspects of the ministry of the Word, but also through the Lord's Supper, also through prayer, both individually and corporately, and other means appointed by God specifically related to His worship, our faith, we're not saved over and over and over again, but that faith that saves us is strengthened. It's the means whereby God, according to His sovereign will, causes us to persevere in the very same faith that saved us all the way to the end. Strengthening it, encouraging it, and confirming it. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about what those are because it's going to come later on. We're going to see it in chapters 22, verses 3 through 6 on the doctrine of worship. We're going to see it in baptism and the Lord's Supper and chapters 28, 29, and 30, all of which are going to be referred to either explicitly or implicitly as a means of grace. So, we'll, dis we'll discuss those things more fully then. But the main thing that we need to see here is that Jesus is the author of salvation, the author of our faith. The Spirit is the agent of our faith. Our faith is merely instrumental, and the way that our faith, the way that we are saved by faith is through the means that God has appointed, namely through His Word. Well, naturally then, in the second paragraph, we move on. No longer speaking now of the grace of faith, but building upon it and speaking now about the basis of faith. What's our foundation? It opens up this way. By this faith, Christians believe to be true everything revealed in the Word, recognizing it as the authority of God Himself. They also perceive that the Word is more excellent than every other writing and everything else in the world. So we see, first of all, the basis of faith is the character of Scripture. And two things in particular should stand out from that paragraph. Number one, it is faith in entrusting of oneself to, resting in the authority of Scripture. Which is to say, insofar as Scripture has been breathed out by God, it carries with it the very authority of God. And saving faith apprehends in the Scriptures not merely that these are really good words or that this is one of, the, one of the best books or collection of writings that humans have ever produced. It's to say that in the, in the words of the many authors in many places over many centuries that have been written down, these are not merely human words. This is Scripture, that all Scripture has been breathed out by God. And as such, it is profitable to us. It is theonoustos. It is God-breathed. It's His very breath. Which is to say that in the same way that you and I, that I could no more separate you from your words, such that to hear you speak and to hear you talk is for you to reveal yourself I can no more separate your words from you than we can separate God's words from God. In the same way that you and I speak, and in speaking reveal ourselves to others, our speech is an extension of ourselves, so it is with God. 
And as such, his words carry the very same authority that God himself carries. And so we recognize it as the authority of God himself. But secondly, notice, we also recognize its matchless excellency. Why? Well, think about what we've been studying on Sundays. 1 Corinthians 1, even the most wise of human wisdom is folly compared to the wisdom of God. Why? Because as true as it may be in the things that it asserts, as beautiful as it may be in the words that are used, as tight as the logic may be in the arguments that are made, what no human logic can ultimately do is bring us the knowledge of God and of His will and His salvation. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross does that. And so, we find in the Word something of matchless excellency, which is to say that we see the content of Scripture, and it is heavenly. It is more excellent than every other writing and everything else in the world. Why? Because it displays the glory of God and His attributes, the excellence of Christ and His nature and offices, and the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit in His activities and operations. Notice three things that Scripture displays. Three things that give a testimony to the matchless excellency of God's Word. That is, that it displays the glory of God, the excellence of Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Take your Bibles. I want you to consider each one of these in order. Turn to 1 Timothy 1. How does... The Word of God, His Word concerning Christ, how does it give a testimony to the glory of God? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. He speaks in chapter 10 about all those things which are contrary to sound doctrine, that is contrary to God's Word. But in verse 11, sound doctrine is that which is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Which is to say that what we find in the gospel, in the word of God concerning Christ, is no less than the revelation of God's glory. Any revelation of Christ must be a revelation of God's glory because he's the one who shared in God's glory from eternity past, John 1. Which leads us to the second point. It not only displays to us the glory of God, but it also displays the excellence of Christ. Let's go to look at some familiar passages. John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. And here we're considering the excellence of Christ in His nature and in his offices, that is, the, his nature as the eternal Son of God, and in his offices as our one mediator, prophet, priest, and king. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not made anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh. 
Now we're thinking not just about his nature, but his offices. And he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. He has mediated grace. For though the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, the glory of God, who is at the Father's side, but He has made Him known. We can also see similar in Colossians 1, 15 to 19, that brief five-verse hymn about the excellency and the supremacy of Christ over creation and over His church. We see it also in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that, that long ago God spoke in various ways and at different times through our fathers, the prophets. But now, in these last days, He has spoken by His Son. And then an excellent study, if to go back and just review, is to read through those first three verses and see how it outlines Christ in His threefold office as prophet, priest, and king, all of them are there. And so, we behold the matchless excellency of the Scriptures because it shows us the glory of God and it shows us the excellency of Christ. But finally, it shows us, displays, that is, the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Verse 11 if the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. Of course, what's being implied in the first clause there in verse 11 is the power of the Spirit to bring life from death. That same powerful Spirit, he says, dwells in you. And He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit that dwells in you. You might also consider what we saw in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 13, that no one searches the deep things of God, but God Himself. But the Spirit has revealed Him to us. Only God can reveal God. God, the Holy Spirit, in His power, has not only given us new life, but has illumined us to the truth of the gospel, such that we are able to sit here tonight and consider these excellencies because of His great grace in giving us faith to see. And so, we behold then the content of Scripture, the glory of God, the excellence of Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, from there on, we also see how faith acts. Having beheld these things, what is our response then? Having been given this gift of faith and the power of the Holy Spirit to behold wondrous things in His Word, how do we respond? We're going to see the actions of faith generally defined, and then we're going to see them principally defined. Moving quickly through it, notice, so they are enabled then to entrust their souls to the truth believed. What does that look like? Well, first of all, they respond differently. According to the content of each particular passage, obeying the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and the life to come. 
In other words, when Scripture commands, faith obeys. When Scripture threatens, faith trembles. And when Scripture promises, faith embraces. But I want you to notice that the paragraph doesn't end there. Because commands without Christ are tyrannical commands. Threats without Christ are empty threats. Promises without Christ are empty promises, which is why the paragraph concludes, but the principal acts, the chief act, the main act, the acting of all acts when it comes to faith is this. The principal acts of saving faith focus directly, not incidentally, not indirectly, but directly on Christ. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Four things are evident from that last sentence. Four glorious things to those of us who have been saved by the grace of God. Number one, we see the object of our saving faith that we focus directly on Christ. But what does that faith look like? What is the character of that saving faith? Well, it says it looks like accepting, receiving, and resting. I love those three participles. A participle participates in the main verb. The main verb is focus. The participles modify. They participate They tell us what the focusing looks like, and it looks like accepting, receiving, and resting. What is there to do? Nothing. To rest is to cease from working, and that's what faith is. It is to rest and receive. And what is it that we receive? Well, there we see the benefits of saving faith, justification, sanctification, and eternal life. Faith is the instrument given to us as as an act of grace from God by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you and I might receive these glorious blessings that we've already considered. You see, it's hearkening back to those doctrines that have come before. It's a body of divinity. It wants us to think about those chapters and all of the glorious things that were summarized in them. But notice then, finally, the content of saving faith is the covenant of grace. You cannot have Christ apart from His covenant. You cannot enjoy the benefits of Christ apart from His covenant. All the benefits that God's elect enjoy savingly throughout All of redemptive history are enjoyed only and exclusively by faith, whereby we enter into the covenant of grace. And because it's a covenant of grace, as opposed to a covenant of works, then that means that all of the benefits of saving faith that we see listed here are things that we receive, not things that we work for. Therefore, they're things that are secure, not things that we can lose, because they are rooted and given and found ultimately in Christ alone. We receive it and rest in it. We don't earn it and we can't lose it. Faith apprehends these things. That is at the very heart of the gospel. But now we get into the final paragraph. And it's here that we see the nature of true faith. And we're going to see three things. We're going to see its true condition. We're going to see its real distinction and we'll see its sure preservation. 
And it's here that the confession, like in so many other articles, begins to just land the plane. And it does so in a way that is for our good and our comfort. Consider, first of all, faith's true condition. This faith may exist in varying degrees so that it may be either weak or strong. Isn't that good news? How often do we look at those around us and we envy them because of what we perceive to be a stronger faith? Maybe we even are tempted to doubt whether or not our faith is even genuine because our faith sometimes seems so weak. It seems so frail. It seems so fickle. It seems so little. Maybe even sometimes it seems shipwrecked. Well, the confession identifies that whether weak or strong, it's still saving faith. Take your Bibles again. I want to give you an example. The, the Bible talks about faith in a number of different ways. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Here we're considering the faith of a centurion. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward, verse 5, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes And to my servant, do this, and he does it. What is it that he's recognizing, not only in Jesus, but in the very words of Jesus? Authority. There's something different about this man's words. And look at how Jesus responds. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such great faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So here we have a great faith. Go to 15. Jesus marveled at the great faith of the centurion. Now we see a similar faith And the Canaanite woman, isn't it interesting? It's a centurion and a Canaanite. It's not those from whom Jesus came, but it's those for whom Jesus came. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman came from the region. It was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Here she's using his messianic title. My daughter severely oppressed by a demon. But he didn't answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. Is she only after the good things that she can receive from Christ in this life, or is there something more to her faith? Is there a persistence such that she finds in Christ life itself? 
Verse 26, and he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Here it seems, in a sense, he's testing her faith. And in 27, she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. That's not to say anything concerning her worth in the eyes of God. It's to say, I would rather be a dog eating crumbs from you than in a sense to feast at the table of kings. Then Jesus answered her, oh, woman, Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So we have a great faith. But we also see little faith. Specifically, isn't it interesting that this is what Jesus says to his disciples time and again. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Look at verse 30. Here he's preaching not to be anxious about anything for the sake of time. We're not going to read the whole paragraph. But he says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, verse 30, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious. Here he identifies the kind of anxiety that is rooted in laying up for yourselves treasures on earth rather than treasures in heaven. You need these things to be happy. You need these things to be holy. These are the things that you hope in. And because you know that moth and rust destroy them and thieves can steal them, you're constantly insecure. And he goes, do you think so little of my kingdom? Oh, you of little faith, do not be anxious. Lay up your treasures in heaven. We see the same thing, chapter 8, verse 26. Here Jesus calls the storm. He says, the disciples cry out, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And in verse 26, he says to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And so, think about this for just a minute. We've seen a centurion and we've seen a Canaanite woman, both of whom are said of Jesus to have great faith. And now you have his disciples who are with him by his side, moment by moment, day by day. And he says, you guys have little faith. So we have great faith and we have little faith. Second Thessalonians 1.3. We're going to hop around for a minute. Second Thessalonians You can also, not, you can have a growing faith. Maybe you have a little faith and it's one day going to be a great faith, which means that for now it's a growing faith. We ought to always thank God, give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Why? Because your faith is growing abundantly. So we have a growing faith. Not only that, but go back to your left, to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Probably could have ordered these a little bit better. Nonetheless, Acts chapter 6. Here they're choosing men to serve the physical needs of the church. And in verse 5, notice how Stephen is described. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. You can have a great faith. You can have a little faith. You can have a growing faith. You can have a full faith. But finally, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, you can have a shipwrecked faith. 1 Timothy. 
says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. It's still their faith, but it is in shambles because their confidence in the gospel has been shaken. This faith may exist in varying degrees so that it may be either weak or strong. I would encourage us, all of us, not to consider ourselves so proudly that when our faith is strong, that will always remain that way. God is kind to bring often bitter providence into our life, isn't He, to expose that maybe our faith isn't as strong as we thought, and maybe it's a little bit more weak than we thought. Maybe it needs to be strengthened further by the Word and by the various other means of grace. But yet, I want you to notice what it says, that even in its weakest states, it's still distinct from what we see in the world. Even in its weakest form, little, maybe even shipwrecked, on the verge of rejecting the gospel, though never lost by Christ, yet even in its weakest form, it is different, this faith, in kind or nature. It is qualitatively different. Just like all other saving graces, from the faith and the common grace of temporary believers. What is it talking about when it says the faith and the common grace of temporary believers? It's talking about generic, non-saving faith. It's talking about the faith that is often put out there at the podium from our favorite athletes and our favorite actors and actresses. It's a generic faith. It's a faith that loves the idea of a person such as God. It's a, it's a faith that loves the idea of a life that extends beyond this one. It's, it's the faith that believes there's something or someone out there that is running things and that is blessing me in some way, but it is a faith that is not ultimately focused on Christ. It is the faith, James says, of demons. Even the demons believe. What makes our faith different from the faith of demons? From the faith of those believers who are imaginary, temporary, make-believers. It is, finally, it's sure preservation. Therefore, faith may often be attacked and weakened. But notice this, but it gains the victory. It can't lose (laughs) because it's a gift of Almighty God according to His grace. You can't lose it. It matures in many to the point that they attain full assurance through Christ, who is both the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Now, this is really important. Because next week, Ryan is going to preach on good works. And it's important to note that good works comes two chapters after this chapter on faith. And in that chapter, there's going to be a mention of how we can look at our good works and we can be assured that, in fact, we do belong to God, that we are Christians, but 
here even more fundamentally than examining ourselves, our full assurance is through Christ. Him whom we have received and accepted and rest upon as the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Beloved, our assurance of faith is not ultimately what we do, though we do all kinds of things. Our assurance is ultimately in Christ, in Christ alone. And true faith, though weak at times, will always look up from itself and finally to Christ to apprehend Him, to behold Him, to rest in Him, to endure in Him, and to enjoy Him. It's guaranteed because it's God's grace.